Hello, and welcome back to Keep Digging for Life. I'm your host, Jason Epps. Today, we're going to be digging into Daniel 2, particularly Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, a couple of notes by way of introduction. Daniel is a Jew that was taken from his home in the first wave of deportations from Israel to Babylon. This deportation occurred because of Israel's unfaithfulness. However, Daniel repeatedly shows his faithfulness to, to God in spite of the ease of capitulating to culture. In fact, Daniel did not want to, in the previous chapter to the one we're looking at, Daniel went out of his way to not defile himself with food sacrificed to idols or food that was considered unclean and kosher. He spoke with tact and wisdom. Now, another preliminary element is Daniel is one of the rare books in the Old Testament split in two languages. Half in Aramaic and half in Hebrew. The Aramaic section starts here in chapter 2 when it says they spoke to the king in Aramaic. This lasts until chapter 7. There are... The script between Hebrew and Aramaic is identical. But the languages are radically different, similar to English and German. Use the same script, but radically different languages. Related, but different. And as such, with that, let's dive in. Now, at the start of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he calls all of his uh, astrologers, magicians to help him interpret that dream. Now, for a long time, scholars thought that the term and what was being communicated here was that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his dream. But it seems more likely that the term... um, and in the context here refers to not the fact that Nebuchadnezzar forgot his dream, but that he's wanting them to tell his, the people to tell him his dream. Just to essentially check the people on his payroll. Because if you think about it, if it was just, you know, tell me the dream I forgot, the astrologers could make up whatever they wanted. We also see here from the text that Nebuchadnezzar is a very emotional man. Because the astrologers couldn't do it, he orders the execution of all astrologers and wise men. Now it's worthy of note here that while Daniel was considered 
part of the wise men because they were seeking out to execute him and his friends. He was not considered a regular dream interpreter at this time. He excelled in the school and teaching that he was given. And that school, ironically, was seemed to be in counter-pagan elements. That's the other amazing thing about Daniel that I want to say here. Is that they tried everything they could to remove his Jewishness from to make him unfaithful. To change his name to teach him about pagan things. But yet... He still remained faithful. Him and his friends remained faithful constantly. So, with the order of killing all the wise men, what does Daniel do when he hears about it? He asks for time. Ironically, the very thing that King Nebuchadnezzar accuses the astrologers for asking. But, for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar grants it. He has a prayer meeting with his uh, peers. <laughs> At this point, it needs to be noticed that in when it is revealed to David, uh, sorry, to Daniel, um, he and his friends, and it's revealed to him in a dream. Interestingly enough, a dream is revealed to, in a dream. All of his friends and him acknowledge that God is the revealer of mysteries and establishes and put people up. Uh, king establishes kings and tears them down. Now, this is incredibly important in light of the king's vision because the king's vision is primarily concerned with setting people up and tearing kingdoms up and tearing them down. Now it's worthy of note that there are two camps within biblical studies here. One interprets Daniel as prophetic telling the future. Which uh, if you look at the text Daniel himself says these things concern the future. The other says oh no Daniel was just you know making this stuff up in his own time period. A one, the text directly refutes that. It says that to the king, these are times of the end. And two, the very fact that this information comes from God means that it can transcend human knowledge. That the purpose of this vision was to tell him the end. So, that is the, roughly, the introduction of the vision. Now we'll get in now when I come back we'll get into the fun part, the vision itself. Alright, now we're getting into the vision discussion proper. Notice first, Daniel references King Nebuchadnezzar's vision. He tells it in full. This completely establishes Daniel's credibility. And again, reinforces the fact that it wasn't the fact that Nebuchadnezzar forgot his dream, but rather was testing. 
Um, if we hold, like I do, that um, Daniel's prophecy. Or if you, let me stand another way. If you don't hold that Daniel's prophecy and he's just writing things in his current time, then the last empire would have to be the Greek Empire. And often the more secular scholars believe that Daniel wrote at the time of Alexander the Great, which is well after the initial exile um, to, to Babylon. Why do scholars believe that? Well, to be frank, they don't believe that uh, people could prophetically be given information by God. But again, God knows everything. God knows the future. God knows what's going to happen. This is the purpose of prophecy. And Daniel specifically says that he's shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. So I take this as prophetic and future. So with that, the gold is Babylon because the text identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head and uh, gold. Interestingly enough, the same um, gold idea is used in chapter 3 with the uh, statue of gold. Uh, silver is the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon right afterwards. Silver, uh, bronze is the Greek Empire, and iron is the Roman Empire. Uh an interesting observation is the fact that the quality of these metals decreased, but their strength increased. For example, silver is less valuable than gold, but silver is stronger than gold, and so on and so forth. <laughs> it, it should be worthy of note that uh, Josephus uh, noted that Rome would be is the fourth kingdom namely uh, in his antiquities and each of these are global kingdoms now the fifth kingdom seems to be the millennial kingdom now you may ask how does that work we're not Romans now so why, um, so how in a sense is that actually occurring? And I'd say that's a very good question. There are several uh, potential answers to that. Uh, first, I do want to say something about the iron mixed with clay and how this points to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire started, if you remember history, very strong conquering everything. But then as they went on, they became greater, diluted, and weakened. In fact, when I presented this material to my men's Bible study, um, one of the members made an observation that I hadn't considered before. And I might want to add it to a potential interpretation. He said that... Uh, and he was right about this fact that the focus is shipped with the statue. The focus is switching from the east 
Jerusalem-centered to a more of a West global empire-centered. And he had mentioned that we are still living in the time of strong and quiet because there have been an ebb and flow of leaders, especially in the Middle Ages and going forward, where there are strong global kingdoms and then weak global kingdoms. There's this ebb and flow constantly, and there's no one United Kingdom, which I thought was a really good in interpretation of this. So uh, that is the one that I might have to do a little bit more research on, but seems to be uh, the, one of the most uh, profitable, uh, probable ones. Now, the so the stone crushing everything and filling the whole earth seems to point to the millennial kingdom. Now, we're obviously not at the millennial kingdom, and the millennial kingdom won't fully come until Christ returns. If you have any questions about that, see my podcast on the Millennial Kingdom. <laughs> Satan is not bound. We are still living with the afflictions of earth and pain in our lives. Uh, so, what are the potential solutions besides the one that I had uh, just presented about the flow of Western leaders? One solution is, and this is very common in uh, prophecy, is there is a prophetic time gap akin to Isaiah 61.2. This is the verse where Jesus reads it in the synagogue and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim freedoms for the captives. Um, That verse. But Jesus stops right there. The verse continues on and says, and the day of vengeance of our God. He obviously stops there because the day of vengeance of our God is not what is being fulfilled. That, the day of vengeance of our God, is what... um, will be fulfilled at his second coming. So a prophetic time gap. The other possible solution is that this um, is related to uh, the 69 weeks of Daniel. The theory behind this is, well, with Daniel, particularly in Daniel 9, where the 70 weeks go, this is switched back to Hebrew, so this is a particular reference um, promised to the to Jewish people. And everything times up very nicely, leading to Jesus' death in the 69 weeks. Which is, if we take a week, being seven years. But there is essentially a, in the 70th week, a whole lot of things regarding the Antichrist and unification has not occurred. So essentially there is more or less a parenthesis going on here between the time of the where the church is essentially occurring. And then it will resume when the Israelites 
becomes center stage and the church is raptured. Now, this makes sense for uh, Daniel 9 because it's in Hebrew, particularly written to the Jewish people. But in this sense, this is particularly given to a Gentile king. So this version of it won't necessarily work, but it's more of a specialized version of the time gap. Um, another possibility is a double referent. The fact that it's referring to the Roman Empire, but it's also, in a sense, referring to a similar Roman Empire that would occur at the, at the onset of the end times. And finally, um, it could, we could still be living in the Roman Empire because we still live in the vestiges of it in the West. A lot of our laws, governmental structures were governed by a Senate. Um, while some elements have gone away like slavery, we still have the internal structures. And if you think about it, a lot of our languages in the West are based on Latin. So, in that way, the Roman society has not fully gone away. So, I would um, most likely either fall into uh, that potential interpretation or the, as I said, my friends in the Bible studies interpretation, but those are the possible interpretations for the uh, statue and occurrence of it. So, I will conclude the rest of the chapter um, in a few minutes. So, hold on. we're back. So, uh, what is the end result? What do we essentially see here? We see that uh, Daniel is thus honored, given high honors, given a position of power, and he um, basically recommends to the king his uh, friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Aside, no, those are the Aramaic names of Daniel's friends. Their Hebrew names are rarely used. I've always found it interesting as to why Daniel's Hebrew name is used, but not the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. An interesting point that I want um, everyone to notice here is that while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed to a high position. Daniel stayed close to the king. Evidently, the king wanted to keep one of the wisest people very close to him. This established Daniel's um, reputation as being able to understand dreams. In fact, this is what Nebuchadnezzar constantly calls him, and the reputation that Daniel continues to essentially have. 
But it raises a question when we get into chapter 3, the next chapter. Why in the world does it not say anything about Daniel? Why only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would refuse to bow down? Well, it's quite possible that King Nebuchadnezzar was again testing the loyalty, and he did not need to... T- he needed to test the loyalty of the people outside of the royal palace. Uh, governors like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to make sure that they would have no malice against him. But he wouldn't need it um, to test it against Daniel because Daniel was right with him. He knew Daniel was um, uh, uh um, um, in agreement with him and would support him. Now, it's kind of interesting because from a pagan mindset, they wouldn't see a problem with worshiping another god, tacking it onto the pantheon. It would only be the Jews that would see this as an act of abomination. Now, the Jews wouldn't the secular king would interpret it as challenging his authority when in fact they're not challenging his authority. They're just not saying that he isn't. They're saying that he isn't the highest authority. That's the subtle difference. And notice the image of gold is directly coming from chapter 2. You are the head of gold. Alright, so that is the analysis of chapter 2. I hope you liked it. Please leave any comments, questions, and as always, keep digging.